Getting on the subject of beautification is like picking up a tangled skein of wool. All the threads are interwoven, recreation and pollution and mental health and the crime rate and rapid transit and highway beautification and the war on poverty and parks, national, state, and local. It is hard to hitch the conversation into one straight line because everything leads to something else. That's Lady Bird Johnson talking about littering. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. In a minute, we'll be back to talk about litter and, more important, littering. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth, and this is a podcast. It's a podcast produced by Alex De Palma. Alex is a bit of a podcast whisperer. Alex and I are inviting you to join us in the podcasting workshop. You can find out more at podcastclub.link. And this is Alex De Palma, Seth's co-teacher and producer. In this class, you'll learn not just the technology to make a podcast, because honestly, it's pretty easy. You'll learn to find your voice. You'll learn to find the others. And together in this proven workshop that's back again, you'll discover that you can make a podcast. Not to make money, because unfortunately, you probably won't. But to make a difference, to be heard, and to find the people who want to hear from you, which is even more important. Podcastclub.link. We'd love to have you join us. Thanks. Litter has been around for as long as mankind. Archaeologists actually specialize in finding litter. Other than graves, all they've got to work with is piles of trash, stuff that's left behind. One of the earliest examples of an anti-littering campaign, ironically, is a piece of litter from rural Greece, thousands of years old, a sign that says, if you get caught littering, you have to pay a fine of 51 drachmas to whoever finds you littering. Of course, we know this because the sign wasn't in a museum, was lying by the side of the road. So litter has been around for a really long time. Sibley and Lou researched the difference between active and passive litter. Active litter is intentionally throwing something out the window of your moving car or tossing a cigarette by the side of the road. Active littering is something that we can do quite selfishly because we know we are moving on. If we look at the mess left behind by nomadic peoples, it's easy to understand how this could have happened. It's not their problem anymore. Passive litter, on the other hand, is litter where you are in place and then you discard something, something that you can live with, something that isn't that unsightly. And then when you leave, you forget that you did it. Turns out it's much easier to change the behavior of active litterers than it is to change passive littering because passive littering is based on forgetfulness or on the idea of diffusion of responsibility. There's a lot of people around. I don't know exactly how that piece of garbage got there. I need to go now. While littering is sort of interesting, it's litter bugs that I'm really fascinated about. Where did we come up with this idea of litter bugs? Shame on you. Look at the terrible things you do. Littering, cluttering everywhere. 
that human beings need to be pushed and cajoled into not littering anymore. Heather Rogers has written a book about the history of garbage. And one of the things she dug up that's absolutely extraordinary is that the Keep America Beautiful campaign, the entire idea of shaming litterbugs, the word litterbug was invented in the 1940s as a response to localities beginning to regulate people throwing out styrofoam cups, Pepsi bottles, and other mass-produced objects of consumption. And it turns out that Keep America Beautiful, which we'll talk about again in a minute, a nonprofit, the one that runs all of those ads, was founded and is still led by people from industry, specifically the American Can Company, Owens Illinois Glass Company, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, the Dixie Cup Company. The leaders of these companies embraced an idea that has caught on more and more, and it goes like this. The creators of industrial output only exist to serve the needs of the public, and the public is responsible. They're responsible for what they demand, and they're responsible for how they deal with it. So if Pepsi starts selling two-liter Pepsi at a lower price, it's because more and more people want to buy lots and lots of Pepsi at a low price. And if people become obese or get diabetes, well, that is their choice. It is up to them. The fact that an industrialist enabled it, not their responsibility. So if we go back to this idea of littering, if you are in the business of making cans and cups and bottles, if you are in the business of figuring out how to get people to switch from water that comes from a tap to water that comes in a bottle, you have a financial incentive to keep that system going, that your short-term compensation is completely based on what happens tomorrow, not what happens 10,000 years from now but when that bottle still exists in a landfill. And so in self-defense, the industry created the idea of the litter bug, basically saying to the public, it's your responsibility, your responsibility to figure out how to recycle, your responsibility to figure out how to not throw it out the window. I think it probably peaked in 1971. 1971 was after Lady Bird Johnson's reign as the most activist first lady in history up till that moment, with the beautification of highways, with the shaming of litter bugs, with a movement to say to people who littered, you are not one of us. We need to make this problem go away. Well, in 1971, they ran an ad, one of the 50 greatest ads of all time, according to the Ad Council, an ad that won two Clio Awards. It's called The Crying Indian. And in this commercial, the star is paddling a canoe, not very well, I just watched the commercial again, down a river, surrounded by trash, surrounded by junk. And at the key moment of the commercial, a narrator comes on. Some people have a deep, abiding respect for the natural beauty that was once this country. And some people don't. People 
start pollution, people can stop it. I'm sure you can visualize what happened. As he stands there, a car drives by and throws a big bag of fast food out the window right to his feet. Well, the irony runs deep. First, of course, that the commercial was paid for by companies that made a profit making single-use containers, the very kind that were getting thrown out of the car. But secondly, that the star of that commercial, who many people knew as Iron Eyes Cody, one of the most famous Indian slash Native Americans in the movies up until that time, was actually from Louisiana, a second-generation Italian immigrant named Oscar de Corti. And yes, he wasn't a Native American. Now, Cody slash Cordy's intent was probably very good. He spent his entire career helping Native American communities level up and see themselves differently in the world. But the subterfuge here runs really deep because this mindset that says people who create our culture and people who create the means and mechanisms of industry are not responsible doesn't hold water. Because if a human being is responsible for whether or not they throw something out of the car window, aren't they also responsible for whether or not they make the thing that got thrown out of the car window? There's a Milton Friedman era mindset that says that the only job of a corporation is to make as much money as it can for its shareholders. But that forgets the time element. That the companies that are based on creating stuff that we can no longer discard aren't going to make enough money for their shareholders going forward. And so now the culture, the culture is starting to take a hard look and say, wait a minute, we wouldn't have to recycle this stuff if you didn't make it and sell it at an attractive price. Maybe what marketers are doing, some marketers, short-term marketers, is using the culture to persuade people, more and more people, to buy stuff they're going to have to throw out, to buy water in a bottle instead of drinking water from a glass. Now, at the very same time, there are people showing up with new entities. Some of them are more ethical and more environmentally sound, probably healthier, but many of them are simply greenwashed. And greenwashing is another cynical marketing trick. And what it says is there are people, people who are nervous about their footprint, people who are nervous about their health. If we take some of that nervousness and turn it into a story, turn it into a shroud for what we make, plug it into the idea that we have trained the world that the best way to solve an emotional problem is by buying something, maybe we can sell them something else. And so a commercial, a beautification project, a plot of wildflowers, these are things that can make us feel better. But what we know is that systemic change Changing the mindset of not just the active but the passive litterer is truly difficult. We've discovered that, yes, we can decrease the amount of active littering by shaming the litterer, but we also know, and it's so easy to demonstrate, that changing the temptation to litter in the first place by not giving people what they say they want, but instead giving them what they need, products and services that are more resilient, that stand the test of time, that might be the responsibility of the industrialist, not simply up to each of us. 
Thanks for listening to my rant. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with a clarification and a couple questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com slash go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Before I get to your questions, first, this clarification. Hey, Seth. In your recent episode on the architecture of architecture, you challenged us, your audience, to create outsized value by targeting architecture professors as kind of benevolent levers on the built environment. And as one of those myself, I was flattered. Uh, But you also blame McMansions on the profession of architect, and I want to push back on that a little bit. Fully one-third of atmospheric carbon comes from buildings, and we architects deserve much of the blame for that, probably. And architects design all those jive plastic shopping centers and office parks set in suburban parking lots, so we'll shoulder some of the blame for that, too. Um, But while states require pretty much all non-houses to have an architect, Less than 2% of single-family residences are actually designed by architects. And of that tiny sliver of architect-designed houses, almost none of them are McMansions. Uh, The difference between an architect and a house designer, it's kind of like the difference between an astronomer and an astrologer. Licensed architects have to go to college for at least five years. We typically work five years in a firm before we're eligible for licensure. And we have to pass six exams, each of which has a 58% pass rate on average. And by contrast, there's no schooling, training, or licensure required to be a house designer. All right, thanks. Thank you for this, Michael, and for the correspondence that led to it. I'm really impressed by your leadership as well as your bubble wrap house, which I'll link to in the show notes. You are absolutely correct. I did not know this. Almost no houses in the United States are actually on the spot, designed by architects. In fact, builders and house designers are culpable for McMansions and disastrous houses. I will say that they look to architects for spiritual and intellectual leadership, and that it's important that we hold all of these folks accountable because you're right. The carbon footprint that we build once we build a house is something we pay for for decades afterwards. Thanks for calling in with this. Hey, Seth. It's Adam from Toronto. Thanks so much for last week's episode on the architecture of architecture. I'm an architecture student myself, and I believe that transforming the architecture field is going to be an essential part of solving the climate and biodiversity crises. 
I'm on a mission to make that transformation happen. I've just started a co-op job with an amazing not-for-profit studio that shares my vision. Their approach focuses on creating speculative work that aims to change perceptions of what is possible in the field. Something I've noticed since joining their team is that they place a huge emphasis on creating innovative projects, but they seem to see marketing as a pretty low priority. Since their whole reason for being centers on solving global environmental problems, I feel there's an opportunity to radically improve their effectiveness by helping them see that there is much an ideas marketing organization as a design studio. I think concepts like the minimum viable audience, storytelling, and tribe building should be baked into everything this studio does. After all, solving problems on a global scale is impossible if you can't convince others to join you. When I heard your proposed strategy for creating change in the architecture field by focusing on the high leverage point of architecture professors, I realized that I'm in a perfect environment to try it out. My challenge is this. As the newest and least professionally experienced member of the team, how do I begin to convince the rest of the studio that marketing needs to be central to all of their major conversations? And in terms of current marketing efforts, how do I teach the studio that strategies like writing blog posts uh, to appeal to everyone probably isn't going to help them achieve their goals. Thanks for everything you bring to the world. Thank you for this, Adam. One of the things I believe that nonprofits in particular, but many organizations should do, is eagerly publish. That if you seek to change your industry, publishing is really what you do. For years and years, I've worked with Acumen, a groundbreaking nonprofit that pioneered patient capital. And what I helped them see is that they're not going to change the entire world of the bottom of the pyramid, the 2 billion people who struggle on 3 to $10 a day. But if they publish their work, if they share their successes and their failures, if they show people the roadmap, then others will follow, will copy. It will scale. And that's exactly what has happened. And the same thing can be true for someone who's trying to pioneer in architecture. If we think about the important architects who have changed the way people think, largely they've done it by publishing their work as much as they've done it by building their work. That unbuilt buildings, widely shared, can change the conversation. And so this isn't about content marketing in the sense that you're hustling people to click on something so that they will buy from you. This is simply about changing the conversation by putting your ideas into the world, warts and all. Hey, Seth, this is Casey from Minneapolis. Hey, during every episode, you run a spot for the Alt-MBA, and it is jaw-droppingly awesome. I've heard it 90 times, and I still let it play every single time because it's just so well-crafted. The guy speaking, the uh, you cannot think the internet guy, his voice is pure gold. His delivery is flawless, and the copy is A+. Love to know more about the spot. Uh, who is this person? Uh, it, how did you find him? Uh, did he write the copy? Did you write the copy? Was the copy your first stab, or were there other uh, versions that you actually shipped and you've tweaked it along the way? Love to know more, and I know others would too, about the making of this Alt-MBA spot. Thank you for this, and it's a long overdue chance for me to thank my friend T.K. Coleman. You're right, 120 or more times, T.K. has been on the end of this podcast, as he is today, talking about his experience in the Alt-MBA. 
TK is a leader, a scholar, a speaker. Uh, he's a really good guy as well. So the origin of that ad. First of all, why has it been on so many times? Well, the answer is that frequency works. The answer is that persistent and consistent and generous frequency, showing up regularly, not replacing it when I'm tired of it, but replacing it when it is no longer valuable. And it's still valuable because what he had to say about the Alt-MBA is true, and it also helps us understand the human condition. Jesse Dillon is a groundbreaking documentary filmmaker. I asked Jesse years ago to bring his crew to New York from California to film people at an alumni event talking about their experience in the Alt-MBA. Thanks to Jesse and his crew, they created a safe space where people could come, look straight into the camera, and talk about their experience. So he set the table. But there was no copywriter. There was no script. And I didn't edit it at all. That instead, what we did was create a place where people could speak on their behalf, not just on ours, about how they saw the world. So what you're hearing are TK's words, not mine. I am flattered that you think I wrote that. I didn't. And part of it comes from practice. The practice of showing up to say, I have a thought to share. And it turns out we can all get better at that. And we get better at that when we publish our work. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.